0: Hi, I'm Ann Welcome to episode 23 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with record producer, prolific songwriter, record company executive, and musician Billy Mann. In part one, he talks about working with Cher, Daryl Hall, Burt Bacharach, Ricky Martin, and Pink, and the art of songwriting. He was an artist himself before taking on different roles in the music world, and that's where we start. Here's my conversation with Billy Mann. Do you remember that feeling of, wow, I can make something... Out of nothing by picking up an instrument.
1: I remember watching my sister noodle on the piano, my brother noodle on the drums, my mom play. My mom played very 1950s middle class American piano, which is very sort of like thumpy left hand bass and octave melodies with the right hand. But it was more a secret for me because. When my siblings, who were older than me and I was the baby, weren't around was the only time I got to play because nobody really wanted to take seriously what I was doing because I was seven years younger than my big sister. I was fascinated by it. It didn't call out to me in a way like you think of a beautiful mind where like suddenly I saw the Matrix. It was more like it was soothing. And music was soothing to me and it's still soothing to me.
0: When you started realizing you could write songs, when that started to occur to you that that was possible, that you could make that happen, did you think to yourself that music would become your life, or was this just something cool that you could do?
1: <laughs> I think anybody that does anything that they love, their initial secret desire is, I want to do this. I felt balanced inside myself doing it. Music is an addiction. It's an addiction when you love it. It's For people that go to shows, they like have to go to shows. I was so into it and I was really curious, but I wasn't good at it. It wasn't like I had this magical power. My dexterity, actually, is not very good to this day. Like I'm a competent guitarist, I'm a competent pianist. It was never a fluid talent for me. I was on my own at a really young age. I wanted the validation, so music gave me a way to that feedback that I wasn't getting at home. I was able to get from other places. I was really awkward with girls. So like anybody that tells you when they get into a band that some element of enhancing their social life isn't a part of their thinking is completely full of it because it was a way for me to also reach out and try to meet girls and it's that simple. But as I got older, the social scaffolding fell off and the intimacy of my relationship with music got deeper and much more emotional and I started to understand how I could serve other artists through that process who had more of an ambition to be out front and center than me. I lost that.
0: To that point, you were an artist and you were signed. Given the whole trajectory of your career, it almost seems like that served the purpose of you understanding life from the side of an artist when you worked in different capacities. I would imagine having been one. But when you were an artist, you looked like that was what you were supposed to do. When you were in the midst of it, did you feel like that's where you should have been? Or did you feel like this was a stopping point onto somewhere else?
1: I felt like there was someplace else. And when I was writing my own songs, singing became, it was like a marketing tool for my songs. I can't speak for Carol King, but I've worked with her and spent time with her. And her passion for songwriting is so real and deep that Carol singing her songs wasn't her initial intention. She was selling her songs with her voice. So if she wrote a song, she'd sell it singing it. Artists are selling with their voices. Now, that sounds really clinical and kind of like a business proposition. But when you think about it, for artists who, let's say, don't write their own songs and they hear a song, they want to embody the song. They, there is a performance element to that. There are other singers that can sell better than I could. And eventually I got to write with other artists, collaborate with them lyrically and melodically. So there was no more selling. It was pure embodiment. I don't know how to address the years that I was an artist. And that sounds funny, but my personal life was in such chaos. Just it's sort of like a blurry, very amazing, awesome experience, including, by the way, Detroit, which was one of the most important markets for me. The three biggest markets for me as an artist were San Francisco, Detroit, and Orlando, actually. So Detroit was very strange kind of homecoming for me when I was there. But I don't think that as an artist, that burning, burning need, I just had a burning need to survive. I mean, looking back, it wasn't meant to be more than that. In fact, I think my artist career was a life preserver to get me across the rocky waters of all the stuff happening for me personally so that at the other end of it, I could survive. And my artist career and I was signed to A&M Records and the people there were great to me. But that was sort of like if I was studying to be a doctor, it was the cadaver. It was, I learned the business through that experience, I learned about promotion and touring and interviews and pressure and timelines and publishing and producers and contracts and all of these things that I never would have known had I not gone through that experience. And so, except I was my own cadaver. I mean, (laughs) you know, it was like I was operating on myself, probably never a good idea, but.
0: People recognized your songwriting for sure. That became a hallmark of what your career ended up being was your ability to collaborate and your ability to bring out the best in other people and other artists and to help them to write really good songs. Talk about what makes a really good song. Why do some songs really work
1: and others don't? There's a ruthlessness on the commercial side of songwriting that's just the reality. But why I think certain songs connect with people and certain songs don't However trite the lyrics may be, however nursery rhymish, however simple or complex, it all begins from a place of emotional truth and it will penetrate an audience as deeply as the place from which it came via the songwriter or the artist who created it. It doesn't matter whether that's Who Let the Dogs Out or whether that's Carole King So Far Away or Otis Redding, these arms of mine, it doesn't matter. I think it's from that pure place. I think it really comes back to what comes from the most personal place.
0: I want you to talk about some of the songwriters you've worked with and what that experience was like. So the first time you wrote with Carole King and the first time you met Burt Bacharach and some of these people who are legendary songwriters can't even imagine being in the same room with them, let alone working with artists and and songwriters of that caliber.
1: For me, songwriting is like so much of a confidence game, man, because I'm nervous going into a session with an unknown artist who just got signed or even isn't signed because you want it to be great. Like if someone sends me a demo or a song they want me to listen to, I am rooting for the song to be awesome before I listen to it. Bert Bacharach was a different, it's a different animal because whether it's Burt or Carol or Daryl Hall or... I got a bucket list and I've managed to check a bunch of it and still stay relevant. But with Burt, he's in the 90-year-old range these days and he still tours. Burt Bacharach is as intense, driven, ambitious, committed, detail-oriented, and funny Today, in my dealing with him, as I am sure he was fifty years ago, each of those experiences teaches me something else. Like for in the case of Burt Bacharach, like he's a, he's like a melody genius. All of his melodies are so memorable; they're like earworms. You hear them, and they stay with you. So when he and I were writing together, we wrote a song for a movie that Sheryl Crow recorded the song. He had a some melodic thing. And I was like, no, I, I think it should be this way. And he would not let go. Very diplomatic. But basically, it was sort of like, I'm going to hear your idea, Billy. And then F off, we're going to do it this way. And not because I'm backrack, but because he hears it and he ha- holds on to it. There are other artists I've worked with that are much more, tell me where we're going, boss. Take me on the ride. And then along the way, they'll turn and say, oh, I really like that. But Daryl Hall was like that. You could travel down a pretty far journey with him. He'll get to a certain point, and, he'll, and then he'll disappear into his own mind, do five different chord progressions, and then sing something back to you. What about this? And it'll be so good that you just say, okay, you're driving now. And then, <laughs> and then you change gears. But I'm nervous for all of the sessions, Anne. I, I don't. But I'm not nervous in a way like I can't handle myself in a session. I'm more nervous like, God, I hope my ideas are fresh and that terror is with me every time I walk into a session. So I try to mitigate the risk of that by coming with tons and tons of ideas. So I'm writing down song titles in a book, constantly writing down ideas, ideas, ideas. On the off chance, the well is dry when I'm sitting in a room with somebody that I can like pull out that book or I look up, I have an email chain that I just keep emailing myself over and over again that just subject lyrics and there's years and years of just random things that I can tap into to see if one of those things is the right Flintstone in that creative moment.
0: Wow. Do you ever look back at that list and say, wow, I had, those are some great ideas.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me say, let me say this. My hope is that list, which continues to be ongoing, that stuff that may not be the right idea in the moment, somewhere I'm scrolling through and I'm going to find it. Every process is going to be different, but that's me. I'm a strange one because I came from singer-songwriter roots. You know, Jim Croce was a South Philly singer-songwriter, and I remember being a little kid listening to Time in a Bottle and Operator and all these songs that were very working Philadelphia, and I loved them, very guitar oriented, all the way to working on records using technology and You know, some records, the drums are real drums and a lot of records, they're not. And I've managed to have one foot in the old school where I get to work with these legends and one foot in the new school where I get to work with a lot of the newer artists. And somehow I've managed that.
0: Let's talk about your relationship with Pink, because it is one of the longest standing professional relationships you've had. I think it's 18 years this year. Mm. So when you work with somebody over that period of time, that intensely... How does that relationship or working relationship change? Or are there things that are so constant and familiar for the two of you that you just go into everything and it's so natural? Or do you challenge each other to try different things as you two move along in this
1: relationship? I think that's a great way to describe it as we move along in the relationship. I met her in L.A. We sat down together we drank whiskey at 11 in the morning together. <laughs> we're both Philadelphia kids. We're both pretty rough around the edges. We're, we're straight shooters. Not a lot of room for small talk stuff. Wicked laughing, biting humor. It's interesting. Alicia and I, over the past nearly 20 years now, have been writing songs as we both got married As we both became parents, as we both went through political shifts in the world, as we moved homes, dealt with personal challenges, losses. I'd say I pride myself on the sturdiness and the length, the duration of my relationships with artists and people in music as my greatest accomplishment. Because being the favorite in the moment is a music industry entertainment specialty. That's kind of how entertainment works. People have moments, and those moments then end. So I think that Alicia taught me stamina in a working relationship, and a lot of that just has to do with the fact that we are willing to bear our souls to one another in the private moments that we do write and take the risks When record companies in the past have said, you know, we can't do this, I'm like, yeah, we can. And she's like, yeah, we can. That's what makes her awesome. And as I've gotten older and as her career continues, I mean, she's a global star. I remember seeing her in clubs in Philly. (laughs) I mean, she is who she is. How rare, how amazing it is to see her continue to be who she is despite the fact that she's. Now, one of the most important global superstars in the in the music world.
0: I'm going to read off some names, and I just want you to give me a sentence back about them. Share.
1: Awesome. I have so many good stories for all these people. Awesome. Work ethic.
0: You can give me a story about Cher.
1: <laughs> There's a moment where when you work with certain artists that are icons, and you sort of wonder, is it smoke and mirrors? What is it? Is it mystique? Is it a glam squad, is it whatever? Cher is the real deal. She is politically ambitious. She is transparent about who she is. She is unapologetic, and her work ethic, and we recorded vocals hour after hour after hour, are you okay? How are you feeling? Blah, blah. And she's just like, let's go. She only needs one name. (laughs) She is amazing. I could, I I mean, the stories I have for her, there's some are are hilarious. I guess the, probably the most important one is that when I went to her home and sat down with her, the first thing she asked me about was my family and my kids, which is very unexpected for someone who basically is the center of the universe for especially folks in her orbit. That seems like a little thing, but it meant a lot to me.
0: Ricky Martin.
1: (laughs) I love Ricky. He's a special person. Like he is someone you meet and you think this person is a star. Just t-shirt, jeans, hang out. He's just absolutely no smoke and mirrors required, a total superstar. And generous and funny. We go out after a day of of writing and he says, Let's go out on the boat. So we go out on the boat and it's Ricky and this other guy who was one of the guys writing with us. And they're these like two like super handsome guys. And then there's me. I got like long hair and Um, sunglasses and I'm wearing like a t-shirt and I remember I was smoking a a cigar in the back of this boat and we're driving around the intercoastal and we pull up and there is a tram, like a slow tourist tram. This is like Ricky Martin mania is in the world at this moment. And I look at Ricky and his face is like, (gasps) uh uh-oh. And I look up and I'm like, (gasps) uh uh-oh. And literally... He had to get down in the back seat. I had to take over the wheel. All you heard was a choir of cameras clicking, 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 clicking. And I literally remember just taking off and him like ducking down, me driving, smoking a cigar, my hair in my face, This surreal moment being chased by in a boat too slow to get to us, a tram, whatever this thing was on the intercoastal wow. trying to get photos of Ricky. It was hilarious. What a wonderful person and really, really special, spectacular.
0: Celine Dion.
1: Celine Dion's interesting. There was a moment in the music business in the late 90s where artists saw the value of music publishing, even though they weren't songwriters, began to enter into the studio to co-write with folks. And at the time that I wrote the songs that wound up on Let's Talk About Love, which was the Titanic album. It sold 37 million copies or something crazy. That took place. I remember Carol King, actually, she and another uh, songwriter friend of mine, Mark Hudson, who also wrote Living on the Edge, they wrote a song called The Reason. Celine recorded it. And I remember they were trying to push for Celine to be a part of the writing experience. And Carol put her foot down and said, Absolutely not. But she's Carol King. I was way far from being Carol King. Things were starting to go okay, and getting a Celine Dion cut was like the biggest thing you could do, and she's a phenomenal singer. On one of the songs that I, that I wrote that went on the record, which is called Treat Her Like a Lady, it had been released prior by a Jamaican reggae artist called Diana King, um, who's had a bunch of hits at the time. Celine went in the studio and did a new version of it, She is credited as a co-writer. Whatever her participation was in the song, in the end, she's my co-writer, and to this day, I've never met her. That's about as direct as I can be about what that era was like. And then that had a real impact on songwriters and artists suddenly becoming songwriters, when in reality, a lot of them were less songwriters, and it was more a strategic participation thirst by people on the team of the artist.
0: If I asked you to define the role of a producer from where you sit, what does a producer do according to Billy Mann?
1: I would liken a producer in music to a director in film. A producer in film is someone that puts the pieces together sometimes finances what it takes to make a film but isn't directly responsible for building the environment for the performance. When in music, the producer is really responsible for building the environment for the performance in music. Sometimes that's me casting the right musicians for a project or the right mixing engineer. A lot of times it's me sitting behind the board looking into the the vocal booth or in the live room and saying, yeah, that take was good, but you can do better, and here's why. And in the same way that the director will say, okay, I like what you said in this line, whatever this is, but when you sing this part, can you do it with more intimacy, get closer to the microphone, whisper it more, or don't over-sing it, or whatever? And those dynamics are not something that a producer in film really gets involved in. So a producer in music is much more like a director in film.
0: Coming up in part two of my conversation with Billy Mann, we talk about the song of his career and the iconic artist who recorded it, the business part of the music business, and his calling to be a father. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. I'm Andalisi, and here's a conclusion of my conversation with Billy Mann. We started with his response to my question about who he would still like to work with.
1: Interesting. Many years ago, I wrote a song. It's one of my favorite songs ever. At the time, it was for a young artist signed to Geffen Records, and the label brought me in to write with this kid and it was a uh, I had 2 hours or something. It was ridiculous, but I would had been in LA. I went to Village Studios. I walk in, I meet the entourage and this kid was very young. For whatever reason, I wrote the song of my life that afternoon. It's a waltz and it was literally the least commercial song, but I love this song. Love it. And I recorded it. I played the piano on it. I played the guitar on it. And this young kid sang like an angel on this and helped me write it, but not actively because the song was way too lyrically sophisticated, but is credited as a co-writer with me. And then it went to the label and the label heard it and they were like, yeah, it's a really special song but I don't think it's what we're looking for. And Rick Rubin was part of the label at the time listening. He was like, yeah, it's a really special song, but it's not, we need a hit for this kid or whatever. And I understood it and I was kind of bummed because it's the song of my life and the song went away. And then one day I woke up in the middle of the night and I was 100% convinced that Beyonce was going to sing this song. The woman who for two decades worked with Destiny's, signed Destiny's Child and worked with Beyonce and Kelly... And Michelle, uh, her name is Teresa labarbera Whites, And she is a phenomenal human being and a great record executive. And I asked her to lunch and I said, listen, I wrote this song. I know it's never going to happen, but I just have this calling out that I think B should sing it or at least hear it. And if she hates it, I'll never ask you for another favor again. But would you play it for her? And I played her the song. So she calls me up two days later. And she says, hi, Billy, it's Teresa. So I played the song for Beyonce, and she was crying. She loved it. She wants to sing it. Can you send me the tracks? Now, that said, what I want you to understand is, like, I had an email with a link of all the tracks ready, like, on the off chance that Beyonce would hear the song. So it was, like, faster than she could say, do you have the... It was, like, ding in her her inbox. (laughs) I sent the music to her, and then... For Beyonce's records, and a lot of really, really big artists, you don't know what's on the record until the day it comes out. And I remember that I know she recorded it, and Teresa was like, it sounds amazing, but nobody hears any of the Beyonce music. And then the track listing came out for the album that year, and my song wasn't on it, and I was kind of devastated. Teresa called me and said, I know how much you wanted that to happen. And I know Beyonce loves the song. And, you know, sometimes the songs stick around for her a long time. And, you know, it'll find its way. And she really did love the song. And uh, and just, you know, hang in there. And I know it will happen someday. It will come out. Anyway, and that was the end of it. Then a month later, Teresa calls me and says, hey, let's have lunch. And I meet her in this diner in New York in Times Square she pulls out her laptop and she puts on these headphones and she just says, listen to this. And she puts on and there's Beyonce singing this song of mine. And the song is called Brown Paper Bag. And I just remember sitting in this very overly poorly lit hamburger <laughs> joint, listening to Beyonce sing my my life story back to me and just weeping. And just, just totally like everything f- just came out of me. I was so grateful, grateful to Teresa, grateful to Beyonce. I've never met her, and I kind of don't know if I want to meet her. Not that I wouldn't, but that moment was such a, a fantastic one. What I got out of that is, here's a song that I feel was one of the best songs. It's one of the best songs I've ever written. The record company that I went to passed, but I saw it through. I got to see the song go through the life cycle that I had envisioned. And in the absence of the commercial success that any songwriter wants, it helped me to redefine my own judgment about myself and my own songs, and also how quick to discount the songs of others who don't get commercial success because the idea is without commercial success, your song's terrible, or without a famous person singing it that the song is not worthy, and that's just not so. But it wasn't until I had that experience with Brown Paper Bag that I step away from it, feeling humbled by the experience. And of course, like anybody else, I want everybody to hear the song. But I still went through the full life cycle of the song. You've never heard that song, Anne, and I don't know if anybody else will hear it. But I think it probably is the biggest hit I ever wrote.
0: Well, now everyone, when I air this interview, is going to (laughs) say, where the heck is the song? And I need to hear that song. So we look at the words music business and they're so dichotomous and they're right next to each other and there's the business of music and you held some very high positions in that world. Did it help that you were an artist and producer and a songwriter or was that, did that make it more difficult for you to do that kind of a job?
1: It helped and it hurt, but I think the short version is the difference For me, being an executive coming from a creative background is that I had a credibility as a creative person that a lot of the executives could not debate. You couldn't debate me about what a vocal sounds like or an EQ or some of those creative decisions. You could, but in the end, only one of us have actually done it, and the others are just theorists with opinions.
0: I would imagine that made for some uncomfortable conversations for them to have with you.
1: I think it was uncomfortable for them, but also uncomfortable for me was that there were certain decisions that had to be made that weren't warm, fuzzy feeling. I mean, EMI was a company, I wrote my first hit in 1995, and it was an EMI record. And here I am going through the roster having to cut artists who are not profitable or aren't fulfilling their contractual obligations country to country. And that was a very strange experience. But I also likened it to let's release these folks with dignity and let's be decisive about the decisions so that you preserve the dignity of the artists, which music industry folks are not particularly good at doing.
0: When it would come time, you know, we've heard all these stories about artists who have albums in the can and they're ready to go and they never get released and then they don't get their music back and the label hangs on to their music and sometimes nobody ever hears it. Were you able to make some of that right with some of these artists to give them their music back? Or was that something you didn't have the latitude to do?
1: That's an interesting question. I think there are times when you look at conflicts between artists and companies that the immediate knee-jerk reaction is the mean company and the artist who's being attacked or taken advantage of. That is generally a not unfair assumption because there's only one artist's career that that artist can have and a company can have lots of artists. In that way, I don't think it's unfair to say that there is a power imbalance. On the other hand, I can tell you personally, I've signed songwriters and invested where some folks have just literally taken my money and left town. <laughs> and the only thing I have to protect myself is an agreement that says that person writes those songs I have some equity in those songs on the off chance I make the money back. And I have seen that movie too. I don't think that record companies, larger record companies, are particularly elegant at ending relationships with artists. Because the fear is, if you're the executive in that chair, if I let Lady Gaga go, then what happens if she becomes huge, right? Lady Gaga was signed to L.A. Reed's Company, and he dropped her and then she signed somewhere else, and now she's Lady Gaga. Katy Perry was signed to Columbia Records. They wouldn't let her out of the agreement, and then eventually she got out of the agreement, and then Capitol Records signed her, and then Katy Perry got a career. What people don't understand is that signing to a record company, now you just have another obstacle course to manage, to navigate, and go through. And all the people in those companies, I genuinely believe, are rooting for that artist that they signed to succeed. It makes them look good. They get their bonuses. Everybody wins, and it's big parties and champagne floats. The challenge is what is required for an artist to succeed today is different than what it was before. And record companies in the past—I we started talking about Carol King and Burt Bacharach. You know, you sit down and write a song, and it's a vocal and a piano, and. Somebody says, this is snappy, and they go in the studio, and they add some musicians, and that's how it used to be. Today, record companies see what has already been created, already built by the artist, already produced, already put on the digital platforms like Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and they see metrics. They're looking at data and patterns of consumer behavior. Oh, I like this. This is big. This could be huge. And then they have bidding wars. Record companies are not developing talent. They augment pre existing momentum. They find a small fire and they come in with a big can of gasoline and they say, We have more gasoline than our competitors. We're going to pour more on it to make it bigger. And then they decide through forecasting how much money they're going to use in cash to entice that artist to basically hedge their bets. That is today's music business. Smaller companies were fire starters. That's what we do. We find things really, really early. Because of where I started, I'm very passionate and the team I have and the partners I have are really passionate about finding things and believing in them. And of course, we're going to look and see what is the data. But even if the trend of what an artist has with Their small Spotify traction or their small Instagram traction or whatever that is, if we see a pattern but we feel passionate about it, we're just gonna do it versus the big companies, they just want you to do all the work. But my hope is your listeners, whether it's the parents of kids who are aspiring to be in music or artists that are into music or people that are just curious about what's going on now with Spotify and Apple Music and these playlists and things, is that you understand the good news. For artists is that we have democratized a lot of the distribution, which in the past was what was used to hold artists hostage. If you want to be big in Detroit, well, maybe you can get Bill Tom at Harmony House to put your song out and you can get some sort of rack locally and Delisi at the river will feature it. But if you want to get beyond the borders of Michigan, then you're going to have to come through us, the record company. And now you don't have that. There's no barrier. So we can create it and then we can put it up on the digital DSPs and it's on YouTube and Spotify and it's around the world and nothing got in our way. And then the question is will people find it and will people like it? And that's how it starts.
0: How did becoming a father change you as an artist?
1: That's a deep question. Being a parent is not for everybody. There are some people I know that have kids and I think you have no business having kids. And there are some people who don't have kids and they have focused their lives on meaningful connections with their community, with their extended family, but they didn't feel called. I have all of these people in my life, but I felt called to be a dad since I was a little kid. And part of that is because I wanted to have that, longed for that traditional family experience for myself. And when I didn't have it, it could have gone one of two ways. Either I repeat the pattern, and I'm a part of the generational algorithm that came before me, or I'm going to devote my life to building a family life and having children with a great partner. I don't think there's anything in my life that's more meaningful, important, and impactful than being a dad. I don't know what my life would look like if I didn't have my four kids. Everything changed. The humility changed. My oldest son is severely autistic. When he was diagnosed... That was a trying time for my wife and me. For any parent who has a child with any disability, you re-examine what love is. Unconditional has a new, there's a new intensity around that. You realize that what you envision that parent-child relationship was supposed to be is now out the window, and now there's a new experience. And that's an experience that's not easy for a lot of parents with typical kids, but With kids with any kind of disability, you know that you are called to that first. And in a strange way, I don't think I would be as successful if my son and his special needs didn't call me home every day, all the time. I was in L.A., I traveled to Europe, wherever I was... I was always called home. When I traveled, when I was running EMI's international business, I remember I would go to Europe. I'd be in three countries in a week, but I'd be home with my feet on the ground Friday afternoon, exhausted, but so I could have the weekend with my wife and my kids. And I think that if I had not been anchored in the urgency of need through my oldest son, then maybe my life path professionally would have gone to that wandering-eye, husband-on-the-road musician life, and I would have missed out on the delicacy of my marriage and my relationship with my kids. There's nothing more meaningful to me than being a, a husband and a father, and now I have four kids from 17 to my youngest is five, two boys and two girls, and they're all great with music. They all love it, and my wife tolerates, <laughs> tolerates all these musical sounds throughout the house, but... I was called to be a dad. And I don't think that's for everyone. And I think a lot of people feel an obligation to have kids. The pressure to have it doesn't mean that they're supposed to. But I definitely felt like I was supposed to. And it's the best thing in my life is my wife and my kids.
0: Did you encourage your kids to take an interest in music or they grew up with it in their lives and it was a natural part of their growing up?
1: I love that my kids love music. I really don't want to encourage them to be in the music industry. And I don't know how far that'll get me because I was very resentful of privileged kids. There's a lot of nepotism in the music business. And, and yet I know my kids will have a fast track. And so, again, it's another lesson that my kids are teaching me. I just want them to be good. I want them to be good people and passionate, and if they love music, and that's a part of it, and they love music, they are good at it. As long as they're happy and not compromising who they are to be fulfilled with music, then I want them to do it. But the moment it becomes something other than the music, and I hope they find something else and let music be pure and fun and healing.
0: How do you think this pandemic is going to change the music business or how artists make music and get music out there and stay relevant with touring being on a lockdown for potentially another year.
1: Someone asked me this question last week, and I was saying, I mean, on a creative level, the thing that I would say to songwriters is that you can't quarantine your creativity. You can physically be quarantined, but... You can't quarantine your creativity. And Anne Frank didn't have Wi-Fi. And Nelson Mandela lived in a very small room, smaller than the room I'm sitting in right now talking to you, for an unbelievable amount of time compared to what's being asked of us. So in the pre-pandemic world, I know for me, I was on a plane every couple of weeks flying somewhere, sometimes flying multiple countries. And now that experience is going to be different for me. That's not, I don't see that as something that I'm going to want to do in the way that I did it in the past. Uh, There will still be travel, but I just think the experience will be different. And I think that, For people outside of the music industry, I think that we're gonna be looking at the business, quote unquote, the business together, and the way we do business in a different way. People that commuted an hour each way to sit in a cubicle in an office in any given city, I think it's not cost effective. I think a lot of businesses already are rethinking the way that they are going to allocate their resources. I think music will be similar. People are working remotely, But I do think at the end of the day and the live music industry will return and that touring will return and that collaborations and recording studios will return. And the plain truth is, is that we are tribal human beings. We want to sing together. We want to dance together. We want to party together. And people would rather risk death. I honestly believe this. And I don't want people to do this now. But I think people ultimately, if we're talking like, years from now, not dancing with other people, not cheering on your favorite team with other people. I don't think that it's possible. So the question is not, is it coming back? The question is, how do we create the kind of scaffolding that makes it as safe as possible for people to come back? And that may be just like there's x-ray machines, there's going to be a technology where people can, you can prick your finger and find out if you have antibodies for something before you walk into a big venue. I don't know what it's going to be, but I know that it's going to return. I think when there's a vaccine and when we acclimate ourselves back psychologically in the post-pandemic world, I think in that respect, music will return and be more vibrant than ever.